Uh, well, tonight, uh, let's jump into 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Um, 2 Corinthians 6, we're going to be looking at a message uh, I've entitled, The Warning of the Vain Gospel. The Warning of the Vain Gospel. 2 Corinthians 6, we're just going to read the first couple verses there. We've been walking through the book of 2 Corinthians, uh, probably a little faster than we've been walking through Matthew. But God's Word's worthy enough to slow down and walk through, isn't it? So much there. So uh, 2 Corinthians 6, let's read the first two verses. Yeah, we're not getting through 10 verses tonight. So. Um, he says, we then as workers, let's, let's actually start in verse 17, is that okay? I do this sometimes. Uh, back in chapter 5, verse 17, for context. Uh, let's read verse 17 together. Therefore, if any man, and you know the people back there hate when I do this. Because they, they have it all planned. But, you know, Cindy's flexible. She already has it up on the screen. I interrupted the verse. I apologize. Let's go ahead and start. They're better than I am. Verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Aren't you thankful for that? Verse 18 says, And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, or to understand this truth, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors. We are representatives, if you would, for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ that, or in behalf of Christ, be ye reconciled to God. And then if you read verse 21 with me, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's one of the most incredible passages on the truth of salvation in scripture. Chapter six, verse one, we then as workers together with him beseech you also that ye receive not the grace of God in vain. For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted and in the day of salvation have I succored or secured or helped thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Father, we are just so thankful and praise your holy name for how great you are. We woke up this morning in your hand, knowing that there is a God in heaven that loves us and you have saved us. God, I pray that you would help us to draw our attention to the word of God. It deserves the supremacy of our attention uh, it deserves our time and our obedience. And I pray that we would have ears to hear and life that would line up to the truths that we'll hear tonight. I pray that we would examine our hearts as well, that if any of us tonight do not know the Lord Jesus, that this would be the night of salvation. We ask it in Christ's name and God's people said, Amen. you may be seated tonight. So I grew up with three brothers and... Um, we were, we grew up with four-wheelers and go-karts and things like that. Um, I think we may be the only people that built like ramps for go-karts. And uh, we had a go-kart. We set on fire at least five different times. I mean, exploding in flames while you're driving it, you know, you ran turn it off. I remember we uh, broke the handle off. And my dad took a uh, vice grips and clenched it onto that nut. That ch and so the steering wheel was a vice grip. You know, you just don't want to turn that loose. And then it got to where when you started it, 
it was stuck on high, like if you were to floor it. So, so my dad would literally start it, lift it off the ground. He's like, you ready, boy? And we'd be like, I'm ready, Dad. I'm ready. You know, he'd drop it and we'd take off. We had a fence behind our house that separated our property from like a um, you know, big Kmart that was in, <clears throat> in Wilmington at the time. And it was inevitable that we would run one another over. I had been run over multiple times by my brothers. And we would run that thing underneath the fence, trap our legs, you know, and we just about kill each other all the time. I remember wrecking a four-wheeler one time as I was older. Uh, my, my parents found me riding it down the road and said, you got to get home. And, you know, 55 miles an hour, I flew off hit the gravel and it shot me off and I flew in the air, you know, and, and somehow you live through that. You kind of look back. Anybody else have those kind of, it's like, I don't know how I'm still here. You know, I still kind of work and, and, uh, but I, you know, my mom was, my, my dad didn't have the type of worry that moms carry. You know, he's like, oh, the boys will be all right. You know, there's a little blood and dirt on there. It's no big deal. But, but mom, she was just that person that would, you know, be concerned and, uh, every time we would leave the house, I mean, it was every single time, and it drove us insane growing up. They would say, you know, uh, you guys be careful when you're leaving, you know, watch, watch where you go, you know, look both ways, make sure you stop at this, and she would repeat this at least three or four times while you're walking out the door, be safe, stop at the stop sign, look both ways, look both ways, seatbelts on, I'm like, mom, stop, you know, my dad never would say that, you know, just be home by whatever time. And, uh, and, and, and she would just warn and warn. And, and one thing you realize is, uh, you know, people who warn you do so because they love you. They care about you. They, they, they're concerned because, you know, my mom was in a very, very serious wreck when she was in high school and almost died. And so for her, uh, she understood the, the, the dangers that, that could be there. Uh, but as teenage boys, you don't really think about that. She saw how we handled go-karts and four-wheelers, so she was a little bit more concerned. Uh, my dad growing up would always warned me every time we would lift something. I mean, it was inevitable. He would say, boy, you bend your knees. Keep that back straight. And, and you know, we would make fun of that like this, Dad. You know, you know just over-exaggerate. And, and you make fun of that stuff when you're a young teenage boy. But the older you get, you, you know, you're, you're really pooching out there and you're really keeping that back straight. You, you, you guys know what I'm talking about? I mean, you, you understand the, the importance of watching and taking care of your back, lifting things in a proper way. It's always like, you know, have good posture and and, and things like that. So, you know, we, we, we mocked that growing up, but you realize the value of those warnings the older you get. Uh, as we come tonight to Second um, Corinthians 6, uh, you have the Apostle Paul who founded the church at Corinth around 52 AD, and he was on a second missionary journey. Uh, he's now several years past that. It's around 56 AD, possibly 57 AD, and he is writing a letter to them, and he is concerned about some of the things that are going on there. Uh, many of the people at Corinth were true believers, but this is the most problematic church that he ever started, uh, that we have a record of. He wrote them at least four different letters, two inspired, but there's also, as we looked at over the last several months, there were two other letters that he wrote to the church at Corinth dealing with problems that he just references in the book of Second Corinthians. And so this was a church that was made up of Believers, as well as some false teachers, had crept in. False apostles. Second uh, Corinthians uh, eleven thirteen through fifteen highlight that he said some of you are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming yourself as the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. So there were also some unbelievers that were in the church with these false teachers, and so he is he is warning them, and he does so at multiple times throughout this book, and so. 
That brings me to uh, the first thought that we're going to look at tonight from this passage is the warning of a faithful minister. The warning of a faithful minister. Um, One of the things that a faithful preacher will do and a faithful pastor, a faithful teacher, is they will warn the flock of God. They will let them know there are certain dangers for the flock. Uh, there There are enemies of God's people. There are those who would seek to destroy you. Paul has just got done in verse 17 through 21 that we read in the opening, dealing with salvation, the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation is the work of God whereby he has redeemed to himself his people by bringing judgment upon Christ for the sins that we committed and Christ died in our place so that we might Uh, The Bible puts it that way in verse 21, that he made him to be sin for us. Christ took our sin on on the cross, died in our place. And so the wrath of God was poured out on Christ so the grace of God could be poured out on us. And God treated Christ on the cross as though Christ was as sinful as us so that he could treat us as though we were as righteous as Christ. He just gets done declaring that magnificent reality. And then he tells them that we are also ambassadors of Christ, that, that he is a messenger of God, that he is in the place of Christ, as well as all true believers are, but he's speaking even specific there in verse 18 and 19 of himself and the other apostles, that, that we are representatives. We are here declaring to you the message of God. He then applies these truths directly to the audience at Corinth in chapter 6, verse 1. He says in Notice in verse 1 of chapter 6, we then, as workers together with him, the him in this passage is God. Paul is saying, I am working, we as God's ministers, the apostles, the servants of Christ, are working together with God. So why should they listen to Paul? Because Paul is doing the work of God. He's not working simply for God, he's working with God. God is in the field with us. Isn't that good? Unfortunately, in the first letter to the church at Corinth, they had made too much of Paul. You know, the problem at Corinth, they would make too much of Paul and then too little of Paul. And both are problematic. And so, 1 Corinthians 3, he says uh, in verse 4, For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos. Apollos was a great preacher, very powerful, very learned in the Old Testament. He says, are you not carnal? When you begin to identify yourself with a man, that's bad. You know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a student of so-and-so, or I'm a, you know, you really begin to elevate a man, that, 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 that becomes a, a carnal process. He says, who then is Paul and whose apostles but ministers by whom you believe, even as the Lord gave to every man? You're saved because the Lord gave that to you. And and he gave us to you that you might believe. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but what's the rest of the verse say? God gave the increase. So then neither he that planteth is anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that plants and he that waters are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. We are laborers together with God. Isn't that something? When, When you're serving the Lord Jesus Christ, sharing the gospel, you enter into God's fields. You are laboring beside the Lord in that event. And you are God's husbandry. That is his 
field. That's a farming term. You are God's building. Now at Antioch in Acts 14, 27, after he came back from his first missionary journey, it says when they were come together, uh, they had gathered the church together, they rehearsed all that God had done, notice, with them. And how he opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. The same language is used in chapter 15 of how God did a great work with them. If you ever see any fruit in your life, it's not because of you and I, it's in spite of you and I. It's the Lord working through us. And his grace has chosen to take such meager vessels in his hand to do the greatest of all works. He says in the second part of verse number one, we then as workers together with him, notice, beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. So he's warning them to make sure both of their salvation and their sanctification. He wants them to understand there is something that they need to be concerned about. That it is possible to receive the grace of God without effect. It is possible to receive the grace of God in a way that is not saving you. There is such a thing as a non-saving faith. He warns them later in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Let's read that verse together. He says, examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove, that again, that word prove just means test. So, Prove your own selves. Know you not that your own selves have that Jesus Christ is in you, except you be reprobate. So he says, there needs to be an examination of yourself. One thing a faithful minister will do is challenge people to look within to make sure that they're right with God. I have asked people the question all through the years, even if they've been in church for 30, 40 years, or they've been in church for three or four times in their life. And, you know, if you stood before God and he said, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? And I've, I've had no amount of uh, surprise to the different responses that people make. You know, there, there are times where somebody who's been to church three or four times here gives a better answer to somebody who's been to church for 30 years at a church that doesn't teach the Bible. And I've had some people through the years get upset with me. I've had people look at me and say, how dare you ask me that? Don't you know I've been in church for 30 years? And then I reply, who is the last person that cared enough about you to even ask you that question? And then I just press them onto it more. <laughs> I'm not deterred by your frustration here. I mean, would you be upset if somebody asked you about your... You wouldn't be upset. The only reason you get upset is you don't have a good answer. You see what I'm saying? You know for sure if you died, you'd go to heaven. Who would get upset by that? You, you would say, oh, I pray, I've, I've trusted in Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. And you'd probably say, thank you for asking. You understand? Does that make sense? So when people get upset, it makes me more concerned. I'm like, this person's probably definitely lost. Who gets upset with evangelism? That, that, that's, a, that's an incredible thing. So, I know I've preached challenging messages through the years that have caused people to examine themselves, but isn't that what Paul says to do? I mean, even Sunday, Harry Campbell uh, shared his testimony how that after he started coming to Lighthouse, he listened to us online for maybe a year or so, and, and uh, he's, one, of the, one of the early messages that I preached was Matthew 7, 21 through 24, uh, how that many, uh, Jesus Christ said, will say they know him, but Jesus said, I'll say to them, I never know you, depart from me. 
And he asked me afterwards, he said, can I speak to you this week? And I said, you sure can. And so we sat down and talked. It was on a Wednesday. And I didn't even remember it until he brought it up Sunday. And I thought, oh, I remember sitting down with Harry. And, and, um, and, and after we went through, I, I, I have about a dozen questions or so. I usually ask people maybe a half dozen to a dozen questions, uh, which lets me know through scriptural questions, whether they're saved or not, by how they answer them, and if they understand the gospel, and if their life is, has, has really validated the reality of that in their life. So after we went through a series of questions, I said, I really do believe that you have trusted in Christ, but I do believe you need to recommit your life to Christ. And he said, I'll do that now and make that public tonight. I mean, he was, you know, and he's been growing ever since, and it's just, just great. But I, but, but I have that regularly happen to me. I mean, just last week, somebody said, hey, can I meet with you? They came to my office Wednesday and trusted in Christ. And, and it's just a, just a constant cycle. Uh, because on Sundays and Wednesdays, there will be a, a challenge to people. It doesn't matter if you've been in Lighthouse. It doesn't even matter if you're a member here. Uh, you, you need to make sure that your salvation is real. And if it is real in the past, it'll be real in the present. I'm not trying to cause true believers to doubt their salvation. Because what happens, and Harry could testify to this, he's more sure of his salvation having gone through the doubting process. And the reason for that is the Holy Spirit is the one who confirms you, isn't he? And, and when the Holy Spirit confirms that, you're like, now I have something stable that I can hold on to because it's not looking for a feeling to validate my salvation. I've built it on the Word of God. The Word of God now stabilizes that. And just, I love what he said Sunday. He said, I, I don't read the Bible anymore. And I thought, uh-oh, where's this going to go? And he says, I study the Bible. And I thought, that's, that's fantastic, isn't it? That's, that's a fruit of salvation. That's a fruit of surrender to Christ. And so as Christians, we need to lovingly challenge our loved ones. Listen to me very clear, closely. If you have a loved one that you know that made a profession of faith some 10, 20, 30 years ago, but their life has not shown the fruit of that, do not hang on to a profession. Hang on to a possession. There needs to be a reality of that. Well, I, well, I know they prayed a prayer in the seventh grade, and I was there with them. And Well, they, they may have spoke some words, but just because they said those words doesn't mean there was a reality there. Examine yourself. Are you in the faith? And, and he even uses the phrase, I beseech you. It's parakaleo. It's it's, I am, I am pleading with you. I am begging you. This is, this is an intensity from Paul that is calling out to these followers of his, uh, or, or these, 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 these folks here at Corinth who are listening to him and he's writing to, that, that, that they would examine themselves, that they would make sure that their faith is not in vain. And so, and notice that it's possible to receive the gospel in vain. The word vain means um, hollow or empty, uh, the, 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 the Hebrew and the Greek words both of it mean something that doesn't have any weight. And we use that today. We say somebody's taken me lightly. And, you know, it's the idea of being in vain. You know, sometimes I ask people, do you, uh, you ever taken God's name in vain? And they're like, no. And I say, you know, that doesn't mean you say it with a cuss word, which that would include that. But it means that you, you say his name. The word blasphemy uh, or t do not take God's name in vain. It just means don't take it without any weight to it. It's like saying his name and there's no, there's no weightiness to it. So when you and I say something like, you know, that person took me lightly, it means that they didn't give me any honor, they didn't give me any respect, right? The opposite of that is the Hebrew word kabod, and it means weightiness. It's, it's where they translate that actually in the, in the, Hebrew, in the English language as glory. It, the word glory means weightiness in the Hebrew. It means like something that's heavy, it has substance, 
So the opposite of treating God's name lightly is to treat it heavy. It's like when somebody says something, you say, man, that had a lot of weight to it. That had a lot of substance. Man, that was heavy. Did you hear what they said? And, and that's how we treat the name of God. That's how we are to treat the truth of God. So, so he's saying here, unless you've received the, the, the gospel and it was no weight to you, there was no substance of it to you, it's possible to receive the gospel in a hollow, empty, lacking substance, if you would, way. And how can this happen? How can someone receive the gospel in vain? Let me give you a second point. So not only do faithful ministers challenge people to examine themselves, and I would say this, faithful parents do the same thing to their kids. Faithful parents do the same thing to their kids. You know the Bible never says look back to your salvation. It always teaches look into the present 100% of the time in Scripture. So don't look back to a prayer you pray. Look to the present because if it was real back then, it'll be real now. You believe that? So Jesus said you'll know them by their past or do you'll know them by their fruits? When do fruit come? Well, I had some fruit last year. And I remember 30 years ago, I was real serious for God. Well, that fruit's been dead for a long time, right? So the vain gospel, secondly, is that which is heard but not received. Matthew 13, 19 says, When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not. You know, that, that is, is that key in church? Is teaching essential? You, you see the problem here? They don't understand. Anybody ever grew up in a church you didn't, really didn't understand what they were talking about? But they went through a lot of stuff. You know, there's churches today that read stuff in Latin. Well, that's beneficial, isn't it? You hear the word of the kingdom and you understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one. When does he come? When you don't understand it. And he catches away that which was sown in your heart. This is he which receives seed by the wayside. So that's a parable of the sower. So the, the sower is a gospel uh, mouth, somebody who's sharing the gospel. The seed is the word of God, the gospel message, and the soils in that portion of scripture in the parable of the sower is, uh, is the, the condition of men's heart. And so there are people who hear the truth but do not desire to know the truth. They're content in not understanding. They're content not knowing the Bible. What does Jesus say will happen to the person who hears the truth but they don't understand it? He says Satan will come and he will take that from their heart. He will remove that from their understanding. They treat the word of God as not valuable. It's not valuable to them. It doesn't have any weight to them. They, they are robbed of the greatest treasure that they did not treasure. They treated it as invaluable and God would not let them keep it. He allows Satan to rob them of what they don't value. Through the years when I speak to someone who doesn't understand or struggles to believe the gospel, I ask them, have you ever read the Bible? It is inevitable that they say not very often. They treated God's word without any weight, with no respect, with no value. They have treated their Xbox with a thousand times more value than the word of God. They've treated their phones and selfies. They've examined their own face and their phone more than the very word of the living God. They've lived as a fool and now they don't understand the scriptures. What can happen if you treat, let me ask you this, 
And I ask this question in um, foundations class every week. If, if you have questions about salvation, if you have qu- you're like, man, I, I've never really studied the Bible. You need to come to foundations. I'll be at table one. I'll be able to sit down with you and I will walk you through. I'll give you a booklet personally and uh, we will walk through the word of God. You will begin to learn the Bible. You need to do that. All right. If you don't know, if you, if you have a lot of questions, you're like, yeah, I've never really got grounded, never really studied the Bible. You come and I will help you on that journey. You will get on the road to understanding the Bible. There is nothing in your life more important than that. You know, I saw a little, little precious girl walk in tonight with a Bengals shirt on. I thought, you know, you're on the right path, honey. But you know what? Even that, we have more important things than Joe Burrow to talk about. Amen? And uh, those things have their place, which is above, like, the brown stuff. But, it, it, but they're, they're still, you know... They, they, we can get so caught up in, in, in earthly things, silly things. And so, you know, I ask people in foundations class, I say, what is the difference between a want and a need? What is the difference between a want and a need? And they, they begin to define that. Often the word priority comes up. Preeminence. Something you value. Something that you, you know, something that's essential. What is a need? Well... You know, those things. What, what is a want? What are some examples of those things? And I'll ask them, you know, have you treated salvation like a need or like a want? At the end of the lesson, I always ask them that. Is, is salvation a need or a want? You go through the lesson, they're like, it's a need. Now I've realized it after I've understood a lot of these questions you went through. It is a need, need, need. But have you treated it as a need or as a want? Friend, do you listen to the gospel as something you need or simply something that you just could take or leave? You understand tonight? One is giving it kabod and glory and honor, and the other is saying, it's not even worth my time. I, I don't even, I, I, I would rather daydream about something silly in the world of this week than giving that my mind. Lord, let, let our hearts be captured with your word tonight. Amen? Let, be, let us be captivated. I think about Proverbs 6. You could flip over to Proverbs, or Proverbs 2, Proverbs chapter 2. Listen to, um, I just want to highlight a couple things there. If you have your Bibles there, flip over to Proverbs 2. Man, I love, I love Proverbs chapter 2. I love Proverbs chapter 1. I really love Proverbs 3. Proverbs 4 is fantastic. Proverbs 5 and 7 are tremendous. 6 is great. Some wisdom there. 8 gets into, uh, it's just Anyway, we're all rabbit trail real fast if I start going through those. Proverbs 2, verse 1. Notice, notice what Solomon says here. <clears throat> he says, My son, if thou wilt receive my words, hide my commandments with thee, so that thou incline thine ear unto wisdom, and apply... You, you get some of these, these verbs here? Apply thy heart to understanding. Yea, if thou criest after knowledge and liftest up thy voice for understanding, if thou seekest her as silver and searchest for her as for hid treasures, then shalt thou understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom out of his mouth cometh knowledge and understanding. So verse 1 through 4 is speaking of the value of wisdom. And he tells us here that you will pursue what you value. What you value in life will become your pursuit. If the knowledge of God is of value to you, you will learn of God. You will read His Word. You will study His truths. You will attend church. If souls are valued, you will share the gospel. You will value and pursue them. 
These verses also show a progression of pursuing and valuing wisdom. He says in verse number one, my son, if thou will receive my word and hide my commandment with thee. The word hide there is a word for, in the Hebrew for treasure. You will treasure, treasure my commandment with thee. You could even say it like that. Those who will receive the glorious fruits of wisdom are those who treasure wisdom above everything else. It's at the top of the ladder for you. What you treasure in your heart will be what your ear and your heart will be listening for, open to and ready to receive. Verse 2, he says, so that thou incline thine ear unto wisdom and apply thine heart. Do Do you see it? What you hide and what you treasure, you begin to listen to and apply your heart to get. And and what you listen to, your heart is open to, and then you begin to cry for it. Proverbs 2, 3. Yea, if thou criest after knowledge and liftest up thy voice for understanding. This word criest is a earnest, passionate plea for this. And what you treasure will become your pursuit. This is a glorious portion of scripture, there are at least eight action verbs listed clearly challenging men to pursue wisdom. And notice verse 1, he says, if, verse 3, if, verse 4, if, and then you get to verse 5, notice what he says, then, verse 9, then. So here's the point, the if pursuits of verse 1 through 4 will get you to the then fruits of verse 5 through 9. Then you will have these fruits. Verse 5, then you will understand the fear of the Lord. The word fear of the Lord is, a, uh, is another phrase for the word of God. You will find the knowledge of God. And why is the knowledge of God important? Because John 17, 3 says, this is eternal life, that they might know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. You want to live forever, then hunger after wisdom and the truth of God more than you desire food. Miss breakfast to read. Forget in your coffee's cold at the coffee maker because you couldn't get past that word. You kept studying the word hide and treasure and you were doing a word study and it was taking you all over the place. Just get so tied up in the word of God you feel like the Apostle Paul who comes to the grand conclusion of Philippians 3 after he gives his whole resume. He says it's nothing he says, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of, the Christ, of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ, that I may know Him. I mean, friends, this, this is how you avoid a vain gospel. And what absolutely breaks my heart is there are churches that seem to set people up for a vain gospel. They intentionally avoid depth in the Word of God. What we do here is an abnormality. You don't have enough smoking lights. You don't have enough energy. You don't have enough sounds. Oh, really? I guess I missed that part. Maybe in 1 Corinthians chapter number 2, when Paul says, I sought to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I didn't get a light show in that part. Nothing wrong with having nice lights, right? Nothing wrong with having even smoke in itself. But there is something wrong with the lessening of the Word of God and the emphasis on the external emotional appeals. In light of these truths, we need to listen to Hebrews 2.1. He says, therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. 
We need to avoid Hebrews 5.11 when he says, Of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing you're dull of hearing. So do you value God's word? Then, then you won't take it in vain. Do you see it as a priceless treasure? Do you see it as a need and not as a want? Then you will be rewarded both by God here and eternally in the glories of heaven. Thirdly, the vain gospel is that which is received and not lived out. If you'd flip to James 1, James 1 in your Bibles. He says in James chapter number 1, But be ye doers, let's read verse 22 together, ready? But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. So to be one who will listen to the truth but not apply the truth results in what? Results in deception. Anybody want to be deceived? No. Nobody wants to be deceived. And, and what is deception? It is to think hearing equals doing. That hearing the truth is enough. You know that God would be pleased if I just went to church or read my Bible. And, and, and maybe I amend it. Um, you know God is more concerned that our life amens the Scripture than our lips amen the Scripture? Nothing wrong with saying amen, but there is something right about living it out louder than we speak it. Matthew 5.16, the Lord reminds us that our light is to shine before men, that they would see our good works, and it would reflect the glory of God. You know Matthew 7.24, who did Jesus say the wise man was at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? He says, uh, therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine... I will liken him unto a Is that what he said? There's a, there's a verb in there, isn't there? I will liken him unto a why it's, it's not just hearing it. The, the person who hears these things of mine and do with them. Do with them. That's the wise man. You know what the other person does? It says, and whosoever heareth these things of mine and do with them not. There's the phrase doeth. They don't talk like that in the 17th century. Doeth, runneth, howeth, do you doeth today? You know, they, they didn't talk like that, okay? You know, um, the reason that the King James translators put ETH in there is because that lets you know that's a continual action. That's something going on now and it will continue to go on. So it's not just do, it's something that you do now and it will be the pattern of your life, Right? He that heareth these sayings of mine, you continually hear them, and you continually do them. Listen to Ezekiel 33, 31. God gave the prophet Ezekiel his message, preached it to the people. Listen to what Ezekiel says. Well, God is saying this, but it says, And they come unto thee as the people cometh. And they sit before thee, God says, as my people. And they hear thy words, but look what God says, but they will not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their heart goeth after their covetousness. And lo, thou art unto them as a very lovely song of one that hath a pleasant voice. They like your preaching, Ezekiel. They come to hear you. You're like a lovely song to them and can play well on an instrument. That's what you're sounding like to them. For they hear thy words, but they do them not. 
Many of us have probably never been familiar with Ezekiel's old passage there. You think that happens today? We've all been guilty of that, haven't we? Well, that was, that was good. You know, people sometimes are like, you know, there's things in the Bible I just don't understand, Pastor John. Don't always understand. You know, there's some things. I'm like, listen, it's not the things I don't understand that bother me. It's the things I do understand that bother me. Right? You, you, you line your life up with what you do understand, and then maybe God will teach you what you don't understand. Right? Is, it, is that what Jesus said? There are many things that I have to say unto you, but you are just not ready to hear them yet. And uh, I think we're in that verse a lot more often than we realize. Amen. Lord, I just don't understand this. He's like, well, why don't you live out the first 10 verses that I told you about this week and maybe I'll open your heart up to some other things there. You know, because God's word's likened unto a treasure and gold and precious metals don't lay on the surface. You have to dig those out. There is a mining process, isn't there? You understand God's word is not cheap. It wasn't cheap to get it to us, and God doesn't give it out cheap. That's why he said, you have ears to hear, you better hear. You better hear. Because, because if you take this in vain, then you will not be given it. That's why people who believe that John 6 believes in transubstantiationism, I'm probably going down a rabbit trail that I probably shouldn't at this time for sake of time. But in John 6, when he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, I mean, there are people today that believe that Jesus is literally talking in that chapter about becoming cannibals to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Oh, oh, okay. So to a bunch of unbelievers, he's going to institute the Lord's Supper, right? So to a bunch of lost people that are going to leave him just a couple verses later, he's going to lay down the magnificent truth of the Lord's Supper. He's not going to wait for the disciples in the upper room. He's going to lay it down now. Is that what he's doing? Oh, because in John chapter number 3, he probably thought, he, you know, maybe he was talking about a physical birth. And maybe in John 4, to the woman at the well, maybe then he probably was talking about turning himself into literal water. Maybe in John 6, he was talking about uh, turning himself into physical bread as well, right? In John 7, when he talked about the water again. In John 10, when he became the, good, uh, when he became the door of the sheep, so he's a little, literal door as well. It blows my mind. The people that get that wrong just show their lack of understanding and the Holy Spirit leading them to truth. They see through physical eyes and they can't get the spiritual truths. Get back on the road we were on tonight. So he's telling them, you and I must be people who hear and receive, and our life must be evidenced. You say, do you believe that, that works are necessary for salvation? I believe that a true salvation is, will necessarily work. I don't think I've ever put it in that terminology, but I would say that. I don't believe works are necessary for salvation, but I believe a true salvation will necessarily work. First John 2, 3, right? And hereby do we know that we know him. What's the rest of it say, church? Oh. So people who are so for easy believism that you just pray a prayer and it doesn't matter how you live the rest of your life. What do they do with that? 
I'm not afraid of that verse. And I believe salvation is all by grace through faith. But people who go down that camp, Romans 2.13, for not the hearers of the word are just before God, but the doers of the word shall be justified. When, when Jesus was asked about his mother and brother, the Lord said in Luke 8.21, he said, my mother and my brethren are these which hear the word of God and do it. That's his true family of God. Matthew 7.21, the end of the Sermon on the Mount. What's he say? Not everyone that saith to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that, what's the word? Is it do, do or doeth? Yeah, so, so what's that tell you? Yeah, it's not, well, I, I had some fruit 30 years ago. You getting this? I, I had some, you know, I was really faithful, I remember. And then, then you have a family member that validates. Yeah, I remember, man, they were really serious 30 years ago. Like the 30, last 30 years. Who's been sitting on the throne of your life? And they're like, well, maybe me, maybe. Like, maybe? Really? Oh, okay, it's been me. Like, yeah. Yeah, do you understand that the, 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 the world keeps wanting to lower the investment in the Christ? That, that you can have a cheap grace and a cheap gospel and a cheap Jesus, and he doesn't, you can, he can be so cheap that you can listen in vain and live in vain. That's not the Jesus we believe in here. Jesus will radically change your life. And if he hasn't changed your life, there is no Jesus in you. You are a hearer of the word, but not a doer, and you have deceived yourself. Is that, is that Bible? Is that what Scripture's telling us? I mean, I mean, what else would make the difference? If, if, it's, if it's not the gospel revolutionizing your life, then it's you becoming good enough to revolutionize your life. I believe the gospel revolutionized every person who gets saved. Why? Because if any man be in Christ, he is a what? He is or he might be. Do we believe the Bible? So he will be. Well, there's just a lot of people that pray a prayer and, yeah, that are probably not saved. Why do you think we have foundations and walk them through? And you know how many people we see get saved in foundations because they don't understand the gospel. Again, I, I, I do believe you can, you can be saved and have a season of your life away from God. Is that true? Absolutely. There can be fruitless seasons of your life and less fruit in your life. But there will always be fruit in your life. You know why? Because you can't escape the hand of God. Anybody glad for that grip? I'm glad for that grip because we're gripped tonight, ain't we? I mean, if we weren't gripped, we're not here. <laughs> I mean, we have served God against our will many times. He has convicted us. He has broken us. We have mourned over ourselves more than we've mourned over others because we know how great the sin has been in our own lives and the greatness of His grace in our lives. And so... So much I could talk about tonight. I, I, I have too much to pass through. Look at James 2 here. James chapter 2. Here he expands on this reality. You know it's possible to say you're a Christian and not be a Christian? James 2 verse 14, he says, just by way of a test, who's done that here tonight before where you, you, you said you, know, I th you thought you were saved, maybe prayed prayers, but you found out later you were not a true believer. Raise your hand real high. So, so look around this room. That was me too. I had been to an altar probably a hundred times growing up. I was not saved. I was not. 
But you know when I truly got saved? As, a, as, a, as about a 13, 14-year-old kid. And uh, I mean, God just, it, it changed my life. It, it, he revolutionized my life. Um, and so what does James say in James 2.14? He says, what doth, my profit, what doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and hath not works? Can faith save him? Verse 17. What does he boldly declare here in verse 17? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is what? It's dead, being alone. What does he, what does he repeat in verse 20? But wilt thou know, O vain, O empty, weightless, of no value there, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Your vain gospel makes you a vain man. So what does this mean? Don't we believe in salvation by grace through faith? Don't we believe sola, sola fide, sola grate, sola deo gloria? Don't we believe that, that by grace you're saved through faith for the glory of God alone? Well, what is faith? For a Christian, it is the absolute persuasion, belief, and conviction that what God said, He will do. And that truth will so impact us that our faith will result, our true faith will result in a true obedience. Ephesians 2, 9, 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourself, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But you know what verse 10 says? For we are his workmanship. Guess what? He will work in us, on us, and through us. It's not of us, it's all of him. And so works do not save us. Works do not save us. 2 Timothy 1.9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ. Is it possible to say you're a Christian and not be a Christian? That's why Jesus said in Matthew 7.21, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter in the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father. According to Jesus, these people had a verbal faith. They acknowledged they believe in Jesus, but Jesus made it clear their lifestyle didn't match up. True faith is an obedient faith. You know the Bible teaches us to obey the gospel, Romans 10, 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. 2 Thessalonians 1, 8, inflaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 4, 17, for the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God, for it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel? What did Jesus say in, in John chapter 8, verse 30? It says, and he as he spake these words, many believed on him. Then said Jesus to the Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. That word disciples doesn't mean second level Christian. That means genuine Christian. It's a mathetes. Now four evidences of a dead faith in verse 15 through 20. James tells us the first evidence of a dead faith is a verbal faith. It's only verbal. Verse 14, notice, though a man say he hath faith. Verse 15 and 16, one may say unto them. Verse 18, yea, a man may say. A declaration of faith without a changed life is a false declaration. Salvation doesn't mean you'll be perfect, but it does mean you're on a different path. As I've said many times, and you've heard me say, it's not the perfection of your life, but it is the direction of your life. Titus 1.16, let's read this together. They profess that they... Uh, I'll give you a second there. I've skipped over verses, so she's like, you know, thank you. Titus 1.16, they profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate. So what's the Bible teaching us here? 
They can profess to know God. You ever know somebody like that? Maybe we've been like that before. But in works, we do, they, they can deny him. And that's an evidence that they're, they're not truly saved. Jesus clearly taught that the people in Matthew 15, 8, he says, they draw nigh to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So the first evidence is that non-saving faith is very verbal. Knows the language, man. I mean, it can tell you the John 3, 16. It can even recite several other passages. Secondly, if, and, and those kind of verbal faiths are usually good at quoting to you Matthew 7, 1. Judge not, lest you be judged. Right? Why are you being so judgmental? Don't you know the Bible says don't judge? I would love to expand that error in theology. As later in Matthew 7. Jesus says, once you've pointed out the moat out of your own eye, then pull the plank out of their eye. How do you pull the plank out if you're not going to confront them? Number two, a faith that is void of action. So it's, it's, it doesn't have words or it's just all verbal. Secondly, it's void of action. Uh, verse 14 could read this way. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and hath not works? Can And you could... Literally insert the idea, can that kind of faith save him? Does that make sense? It's not just true saving faith can save them. It's, it's saying, can that kind of faith, the kind of faith that like says that, but doesn't have any actions, can that kind of a faith save? He goes on and says, that's a dead faith in verse 18. And he gives an example in verse 15 and 16. He says, if a brother in verse 15 is, uh, or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, one of you say unto him, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, notwithstanding you don't give him the things that are needful to the body, what is a profit? In other words, if, if you only say, hey, God bless you, man. You look like you're so hungry and cold. Shut the door. You know, what benefit does it give to them? If you only say beneficial things. They, words without works do not profit. That's his simple point there. Faith without works to follow is an unprofitable faith. And so thirdly, a faith that doesn't save is a faith that doesn't evidence life. In verse 26 of this chapter, he says this, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. How do you know if something is alive? It always produces fruit. Put that stick in the ground in the fall, you want to see something on the branches in the spring. If there's nothing that comes on the branches by May or June, you're going to break it in half. You're going to run over it with your lawnmower. You're going to say, you twig, you punk. I bought you on sale last year in Lowe's back parts, you know, and, and I brought you here. I watered you and you stick, you stiff neck stick, you. Bear some fruit, you know. And, 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 and if it doesn't have any flowers, no plants, you know that, that it's dead. In Matthew 7, right before he gets into dealing with the false profession of faith, he says in verse 20, Wherefore by their fruits ye shall know them. People say, you can't tell if somebody's saved. Uh, yeah, you can. Maybe not right away always, but time and truth hold hands, don't they? When you have Jesus Christ in your life, his life will come out of you. 1 John 5, 12, he that hath the Son hath life. And then lastly, a faith that simply believes in God. A non-saving faith is a faith that simply believes in God. Verse 19, he says this, Thou believest in God? Thou believest that there is one God. You're a monotheist. Thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. I mean, you're doing good. You believe there's only one God? You're, you're orthodox. The devils believe, and not only does it affect the demon's intellect, but it goes into their emotional capacities. They're at a higher level of belief than you. 
So believing in God doesn't save. It's believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, repenting of your sins and surrendering your life to Him as your King. Doesn't mean perfection, but it means you have surrendered your will. It's you giving up all of you, all that you are to have all that He is. Is that a good trade? Anybody think that's a good deal? And if you're not willing to make that kind of arrangement of surrendered will to King Jesus, then you can have the world in the sandcastles. And you will be led into utter darkness and blindness and ignorance because you took in vain the most treasured, valued thing that ever came to this earth. The Word of God and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Two evidences of real saving faith in verse 21 through 26. I don't have time to go deep into this at all, so let me rush over it in a couple minutes. First of all, real saving faith is built on the Word of God. Notice where he goes in verse number 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? And he begins to go into the story of Abraham. In verse 25, likewise also was not Rahab the harlot. You know what he does? He goes to the Word of God. He begins to use the Word of God to define the Word of God. James 1.18, he says, Of his own will begat he us through the Word of truth. James 1.21, he said that you receive the Word of God. It's, it's engrafted and it's able to save your souls. Those who are truly saved are born again by the Word of God, and they love the Word of God. Secondly, real living faith believes God through trials. You last. True faith lasts. Here James gives two illustrations in James 2, 21 through 26. You couldn't have two more different people. You have Abraham a Jew, uh, Rahab, a har- Rahab a Gentile, Abraham a godly man, Rahab a harlot, Abraham was a friend of God. Rahab belonged to those who were called the enemies of God. Though total opposite on so many spectrums, they both demonstrated the same saving faith in the midst of trials. Abraham was tested by God to offer his son Isaac. And it was through that test that validated his faith was real. Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar, seeing thou how faith wrought with works and by faith by works was faith made perfect or complete. It validated it. And 23, and the scripture was fulfilled which saith Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. He was called the friend of God. So belief there is not just simply intellectual. That's what the easy believism camp wants you to think. It is a belief that can be demonstrated even in those kind of intense situations. You're not the second and third soil of Matthew 13, both of which were not true believers. There are six soils in Matthew 13, three that were lost and three that were saved. Three that bore no lasting fruit and three that bore 30, 60, and some 100 fold. How misunderstood that for that passage has been to people. So, and then Rahab the harlot. This is one of the most incredible people. I mean, she's a harlot. What did she do for a living? Harlotry. You know? And, and you, you think about how limited her understanding of the Bible was. Right? Did she have the Old Testament? She's working off very limited information. She's never heard the name Jesus, Yeshua. She was very limited in knowing anything, but she believed. She hid the spies. She put out the scarlet, 
And she put her life on the line in believing in the God of the Jews. Yahweh. She believed. Her, her belief is an indictment on the church of America. I mean, she had so, we have the word of God. We have the whole canon of scripture completed. We have the whole, we have so much. We look back to the cross. She had no understanding of those things. And you know, God took that and uh, she became the great, great grandmother of King David. And so as we wrap up tonight, the warning of a faithful minister he will warn the flock. Faithful parents will warn their kids. Faithful friends will warn their loved ones. The vain gospel is that which is heard but not received. People hear it, but they don't receive it. They don't value it. Secondly, the vain gospel is that which is received, but it's not lived out. It doesn't mean anything to them. Oh, I'll receive that. It's kind of like an eternal security card. Yeah, yeah, I I, you know, I never write that down for somebody to say, you know, you know on this day, you never have to look back in doubt because see that date right there? I don't do that for people. I, I say, I'd probably say, hey, you need to look at that date and say, was that real? <laughs> because if it's real, it'll be real today. Nothing wrong with knowing the day that you confess Christ. That's a wonderful thing. Write it down in your Bible. Have something. That's great. You know, Eric Woodworth sent me um, two months ago in June. Eric Woodworth, missionary in Honduras, sent me as a card I gave him like, say 17 or something years ago I don't remember and uh, me going out and, and he ended up getting saved and and then his brother Nathan who's a pastor uh, over in Circleville just sent me a thing I don't even remember this stuff in 2004 when I led Nathan to Christ it was like September 18th maybe 2005 and he sent me said I, I just was looking through my uh, uh, desk at, at his office there at church uh, and, and saw this and they had 380 some people the other week at one of their uh, summer special days and uh, God's just pouring out his blessing. Nathan's actually going to come preach for us in September for a couple of days in a revival and uh, I'll tell you he's one of the, he's a powerful preacher. You will be blessed, blessed by him. But just the, the joy of that and, 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 and so it's okay to write that stuff down but I'm telling you if it's true then it'll be true now. So two evidences of real saving faith is that you, you uh, build it on the Word of God and it lasts. It lasts. You're not blown over. You know, in Genesis 6, you have Noah and his three sons building an ark. The Bible tells us it took 120 years to build that giant boat. All the time they preached and warned the people of the coming judgment. And 120 years and no one believed it. No one believed it. And the flood came and the Bible says and it, and it took them all away. I don't know where you are tonight, but I, but I would say this. Examine yourself. Are you in the faith? Prove your own self. Know that Christ is in you except you're, you're a reprobate. H have you treasured this? Could you honestly say tonight that this has been weighty to you? This has been valuable to you? Because if it's not valuable to you, the author's not valuable to you. And I tell you, he doesn't give out a cheap gospel. So, so tonight, you need, to, you need to examine your heart. If you're not saved, you need to come and you need to cry out for mercy and say, God, forgive me. Open my eyes. I need to understand your truth. I need to be saved. Give your life to Christ fully, completely. If you need to talk to someone, I'll be down front. I'll have someone I talk with you. But maybe you're here tonight and somebody's on your heart that you know that needs to be saved. Somebody you need to talk to. Don't put that off. It is love that will bring you to them with the true gospel. And if you don't know Christ and if you have some doubts, uh, make sure of your salvation. Make sure of your, don't, don't have just a verbal faith. Have a real living faith. Amen. Let's all stand tonight. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. It's our joy. We're so thankful. I pray tonight as 
is the word of God is likened unto a sword that, that, that cuts. And, and, and Lord, for the believer tonight, they're, they're reaffirmed. The, the believer loves this. They, 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 they long for these kind of messages because it just reassures their salvation. It edifies them. It, it encourages them to, to, to pray for loved ones who may be not showing a level of fruit that, that creates concern. And I pray tonight that our hearts would be stirred to pray for those dear folks. They, they may be saved, but they may not be, and, and we're concerned. Lord, help us to go to them in love and in grace, but to go with questions, to go with Scripture, to, to bring them the Word of God not in any type of critical way but in a way that is with, with even tears in our heart and our eyes and I pray tonight if anyone doesn't know Christ oh God may you save them tonight there are some tonight inevitably that have taken your word in vain they have treated you with contempt be merciful God be merciful you have not rewarded us according to our iniquities You've shown mercy when we didn't deserve it. Be merciful to them now, Holy Father. Open their eyes and ears. Give them what they don't deserve. Grant them salvation through your grace. May they see their need and may your Holy Spirit do its saving work. Be God in our service, in our lives. In Jesus' name.